The scripture I was thinking of today, uh, we've already said in our comments on the smaller catechism in Exodus 20. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Today I want to finish up this story of Martin Luther. For on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago Tuesday, Martin Luther hung the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. And so this month we've been celebrating what is called the Quincentennial Celebration with a month of preaching and study. And I've tried to keep it interesting, I've tried to keep it fun, and I've also tried to be fair in this story and tried especially to show how this story I think is so relevant actually to where we are in our lives today. Today I want to finish that story by traveling from Wittenberg 1517 to New Brighton 2017. Now, to do this, I've drawn a map. Now, it's always bad when you draw and you have to tell people what it is, right? This is supposed to be the world and this is supposed to be Europe, okay? So some people get the artsy-fartsy gene. I only got half that gene, I think, and it's not the artsy side. So, um, we're gonna try to travel from Wittenberg, Germany, to New Brighton, Pennsylvania today and follow the history of what happens after Martin Luther to see if we can understand some of the impact that his story has on our lives. Um, By way of review, Luther was in a very different time than ours and really fought for a number of things. There was at that time a, a commercialization of salvation. You had to buy your way, you had to buy, you had to earn, you had to get. But that is not what Luther found when he looked at the scriptures for himself. He found a faith that was really based on grace, that became yours when you had faith in it, when you believed in it, not when it was bestowed upon you or when you earned it in some way. Luther always wanted to follow his conscience. It didn't matter what other people said. If he believed something, If he got through the authority of Scripture that he felt, man, I'm going to charge forward into this. That was a pretty brand new idea, by the way. And most throughout most of history, you did what the authority told you to do. Luther said, no, 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 unless you could tell me and I have to follow my conscience. I'm captive to my conscience. He believed in the priesthood of all believers. He believed that all believers had access to God and should have access to the scriptures. That they should know their faith. They should understand the things. That yes, there's a role for pastors and priests to play. But that it can be done too much. That it really needs to be about what everybody is into. And everybody needs to see themselves as having access to God. He believed in the authority of scripture. Above tradition, above what people said, Scripture said, he said, you should go back to the Scriptures. And he believed that so much that he spent months and months and months translating the Bible into the common German tongue so that people could have it for themselves. At first, Luther didn't understand the need for law and governance. He thought those had been abused for too long. But then a lot of people took his words and made them uh, fighting words. And used them to get away from law and order. And so Luther ended up coming back and really saying, no, 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 we need law. We need order. We need governance. It just needs to be in the right place. All these things would have a huge impact on the world that would follow Luther. And still to this day, 
um, impacts your life. From Luther's time in, in Wittenberg, Wittenberg, Germany, a little town when he started, to all across Europe, to into this new world, Martin Luther's words traveled. He revolutionized the printing industry. You don't seem to understand this. We don't think about it. I, I never did until I started reading about it. But without books, you had to either hear somebody or get a personal letter from them. Okay, you can't just, or you had to have people copy down your words. So movements could only go so far. But with the printing press, Martin Luther could write something and it could be copied in another town and in another town and could actually travel far. Actually, one of, the, one of the great things Luther did was write in German because the German people could read it. But actually, his words slowed down then because only German people could read German. And so it had to be translated to move to other places and other places, but quickly it was. The other thing that happened that really helped the Luther's cause move was persecution. As people started to go against the church, they would often be kicked out of their lands. They would often be kicked off of their, out of their homes. And they had to move and go to other places. But you see, that, that doesn't actually hurt a movement. It helps a movement because then the idea spread more. The idea spread more. And people come back more inspired by everybody else's story. So let's track this. This little red uh, star is supposed to be about Wittenberg and about Germany there. Okay? According to my drawing. Okay? So the biggest impact of Luther's movement immediately was in Germany. Um, it really helped bring the people of Germany together. Germany was kind of divided. And, and Luther's Bible, in fact, had a huge impact on the German language. It was really important for bringing Germany together as one nation eventually because they all decided to speak that sort of dialect of German. Remember, the whole world's basically tribal until Luther. Okay, you have this big Roman Empire. You have kind of general alliances. But most of the ruling was done locally. And not all the languages, and even in Germany, there were different dialects of German. Luther helped bring that language together. He also uh, wrote such exquisite hymns. We've been reading them, but uh, he really had a great soundtrack to the movement. And so the German people kind of rallied around his songs. Luther was also incredibly influential in helping Germany become a nation because he supported the law. He supported the government. He tried to empower the princes to stand up for the faith that they were believing in. Because of his own marriage, he really believed in marriage and wanted law to support marriage and family. But he also saw the problem of having laws that were just passed down from higher authority. So Luther really wanted the government to listen to the people. This is a fairly new concept. Fairly new concept that a government should listen to the people. Luther's movement, though, takes a while in Germany because as soon as, okay, from, from Turkey over this way, um, the Turks were coming in. This was really bothering the Catholic Church that's here in Rome, Italy. Um, but as soon as that dies down, the Roman Empire marches up here and really starts to mess with Germany. In fact, um, the emperor of the, at the time took over Wittenberg, the town where Luther was from, and most of Luther's followers had to leave. And that became really Catholic land again. But it was such a grassroots people that it kept going. Now, to the south, we have the Swiss Reformation. During Luther's time, a man named Zwingli starts writing. Zwingli was what, we, what was called the Anabaptists. Anabaptists. They did not believe in the baptism of babies. 
And in fact, they did not believe that communion was anything special. They just believed it was just, just a remembrance. Okay, just a remembrance. And Luther and Zwingli had words through letters and other writings about this. Okay, but the Swiss Reformation was important. The Anabaptists would later be called Baptists, by the way. And so, so that the whole movement of Baptists end up starting with this, uh, the Anabaptists and Zwingli. But it marks a really important move that Luther helped to propel in the world. And that is the disenchantment of the world. In Luther's time, listen to some of Luther's hymns. He talks about devils. He talks about the devil. An arrows attack, you know. It was a very superstitious time. But the world after Martin Luther wasn't that way. The Enlightenment kept pushing people to not believe in, in demons and ghosts and monsters in the woods, but to say, no, 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 there's a world out here and we need to understand it. It becomes a huge move for science, a huge encour encouragement for science that the Christians stop saying that there's all these spiritual things that um, we can't understand and start saying, let's understand the world that God gives us. Now, at the very edge of Switzerland, uh, in what at that time was really associated with France, is a little town called Geneva. Everybody's heard of Geneva, right? Because we have Geneva College right there. There's a man there named John Calvin. And John Calvin, really, after Luther dies, there's not a real strong Lutheran voice to kind of carry on the Reformation. And the mantle really ends up getting passed to John Calvin in Geneva. And John Calvin in Geneva tries to set up the government to really be around the Protestant church, starts to emphasize preaching in a way that hadn't ever been uh, emphasized before till Luther. Calvin preached, he preached every week and every day a lot of the time. Uh, and actually the rules of the town were for a while that you had to go to church every day to hear him preach. Um, that got backed off as people complained a little bit. Um, Calvin also wrote what's called uh, The Institutes of Christian Religion. It's this two-volume book. You can get it in one volume. It's really big. Okay? But what it really is is a crash course in Christianity. When he looked around and said, okay, all these people are starting to read the Bible. And Geneva actually published a Geneva Bible that people could read. But he, what he said was people don't know what they're reading. They have no idea what they're reading. So I need to write something that's going to help them have a basis for reading the Bible when it comes to them. So he writes this big volume to help them do that. See, this is a huge move for the Reformation and a huge impact that you see even in the world today. Education was not near as big a deal before Martin Luther and John Calvin and these guys. But part of the Enlightenment was we need to start learning. We need to start learning. We need to start reading. We need to start getting the Bible for ourselves. And it, and it works its way down, right? Well, we better start teaching our kids to read so that they can read. And it also works its way up. Oh, okay. Well, we need colleges. We need universities. We need to train our pastors deeply if they're going to read and interpret these Bibles. But we also need to train our people. And at the same time this is going on, we're starting to get more science. The Enlightenment's happening. We're starting to get more philosophy. We're starting to get all these different kind of fields where universities start pop popping up, okay? We value in this country education. We have lots of colleges and universities. And, and really, it comes out of a lot of this movement that people need to learn and to grow. At the same time that Luther is in Wittenberg, there's a king sitting in England named Henry VIII. Have you heard Henry VIII? You've at least heard a song about him, right? I'm Henry Henry VIII, I am, right? Henry VIII, um, was uh, 
he really wanted a male heir. You know this story? He really wanted a male heir, but he kept either marrying women that couldn't get pregnant or they kept having girls. He got married six times, by the way. Okay? We now know scientifically that it's actually his fault, right? Gender is more decided by the guy. But anyway, um, six times he got divorced. And after about a couple of them, the Pope said, no, I can't give you another divorce, another annulment. You can't do this. And so King Henry VIII said, well, then forget it. I'll start my own church, the Church of England. You still have these churches around in this tradition. It's the Anglican Church or the Episcopal Church. You use different names depending on kind of where they're from. Um, Henry VIII really was still Catholic. He was never totally on board with all the Protestant ideas, but um, he does have some of those ideas and let some of those into his land because it helps him distance himself from the Catholic Church. Uh, and so still today, you have a Church of England. Later, in 1611, another king would be on the throne named King James. King James would be hugely important because he would be the first one to authorize an English Bible. There had been lots of hidden ones, lots of secret ones. But in 1611, the King James Version of the Bible was put together and given to, and they called the King James Bible in honor of him. Now, to the north of there, we have Scotland. There was a guy from Scotland named John Knox. John Knox, hugely important guy, who had to leave Scotland and ended up going and studying with Calvin in Geneva. So he left for a little while and came to Geneva. Um, and there he learned all about the Reformation, all about some of the government things that, uh, that he was trying to do. And then Knox turned around and went back to Scotland and was very influential in helping Scotland become its own independent co uh, colony. Really, they, they decided to be reformed instead of being part of the Church of England and fought and won to, uh, to have that. Knox was hugely influential in helping Scotland be Scotland. He started a form of government for the church where elders are elected to positions. And the, the Hebrew word for elder is presbyteros, presbyterians. Later they would be called presbyterians because of the form of government that they had. So Knox is just hugely influential in the governance of a number of the reform because when those people come over to the new world, um, it becomes this huge movement over here. In the 1700s, a man named John Wesley comes out of England. John Wesley was an Anglican priest who didn't agree with a lot of the things the Church of England was doing. And so he wanted to be more free. He wanted to give, have more preaching. He wanted to travel around. Even though he was persecuted, it was a different world for Wesley. Where Luther was really under threat of his life. By the time we get to Wesley there's a lot more sense that you should follow your conscience in what you're doing. Wesley's brother Charles also helped his movement a great deal by writing a ton of hymns, sort of continuing this emphasis on hymns and on songs. Here's a few Charles Wesley songs you might know. Christ the Lord has risen today. Come thou long expected Jesus. Hark the herald angels sing. Love divine, all loves excelling. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And if you looked up in the back of the hymnal, you'd find more Charles Wesley hymns in our hymnal today. Wesley's movement would become the Methodists. 
anything with the word Wesley in it, Wesleyans, um, and also the Nazarene Church. So right down the road, the Nazarene Church all come out of that same movement. The, this reform movement would also have a, a Dutch element, would have a lot of others. It stays pretty much in the West, doesn't go too far any other way, but it does stay here in Europe. All during this time, by the way, um, the Catholic Church is, uh, there's not a lot of Protestantism in Italy, right? Because that's where Rome is. Spain and Portugal tend to stay pretty Catholic too. All during this time, there's this whole new world that was discovered in 1492, just before Martin Luther did the 95 Theses. And so these people, especially a lot who are, who are fighting from, running from persecution, like the pilgrims, start coming over to this new world. Some of the Spanish countries, uh, uh, some, yeah, uh, some of the more Catholic countries, Spain and Portugal, tend to go down here. So you get Mexico and Brazil that tend to be very, very Catholic to this day because those Catholic countries came over here. England sends a lot of people right to the middle of our country in what is a state, very, very English name actually, we call Maryland. Okay, it was Maryland for Queen Mary. So you get a lot of Episcopal churches right in the middle of our country. Up in the north part, you get a lot more Baptists and, and some Anglican churches around Connecticut, that area, land in Boston. A lot more Baptist churches up north, Southern Baptists sort of come along later. And then you have the Presbyterians. And the Presbyterians land primarily in New Jersey and Philadelphia. So if you go to Philadelphia, there are Presbyterian churches everywhere. And once Philadelphia is full, they go west. What city do you think they go to? Pittsburgh, that's right. So we, like, the landing zone, the invasion of Presbyterians comes right through here. And that's why you look at, and, and uh, all from that Scottish tradition, that's why you look at a town like New Brighton, you have two Presbyterian churches. Because we're right in the sweet spot for a lot of Presbyterians. That's how this starts coming to the new world. And these reformers, when they come to the New World, they end up really bringing a lot of these ideas that they learned in the Reformation to this new country. The idea of freedom. The idea of no tyranny. The idea of capitalism. This idea that you should be able to work and earn what you get and nobody else should be able to take that from you or force you to be doing anything else. These are all ideals that come out of this trajectory from Wittenberg. We have a legal system with juries and innocence until proven guilty. Do you know why a lot of the reformers want that? A lot of Protestants coming over? Because they didn't have that in Europe. You were, when Luther went to trial, he wasn't tried. He was already guilty. He just had to admit it. The reformers wanted a legal system that would be fair and honest, where the priesthood of all believers, the people would have some say in the justice and would have some say in the governance. We come over here, we don't get a king, we get these elected officials. And by the way, if you look at the government system of the Presbyterian Church and you look at the governmental system of the United States of America, they look very similar, right? A representative form of government where you go and you're supposed to have terms, although not everybody has terms now, right? And then there's higher levels of authority and there's different branches of government. Actually, it's very Presbyterian to have elders be elected, to have elders and deacons, to have presbyteries and synods and general assemblies. That's not because Presbyterians modeled their government off of the United States. It's actually the opposite. 
a number of Presbyterians. There were 12 Presbyterians of the, I think, 52 or something that signed the Declaration of Independence. Five of 12 were Presbyterians. One was a guy named John Witherspoon, who was a Presbyterian minister. And he was the director of, uh, I think it was called at that time, New Jersey College in Princeton, New Jersey, which would later become Princeton University and then Princeton Seminary. And he had a huge influence on the writing of um, both the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation, the prequel to our Constitution of the United States of America. The United States of America is built on Presbyterian polity. Did you know that? No? So these guys continue to have this, this huge impact. From Wittenberg, through all these countries, all the way over to our country, the influence on the thinking, on the legal system, on all these things, on education, on the idea that you should be able to follow your conscience, these were all fairly new ideas that were brought by these reformers in this reformed tradition over to this land. Now, to be fair, there are, the Catholic Church itself has had a number of reforms too. So I don't think the Catholic Church looks very much like the Catholic Church. In Luther's day, this, this culminates in Vatican II um, in the 1960s where the Catholic Church really makes a number of changes, moving mass to vernacular language, modernizing music, and attempts to make scripture more central. Um, so even the Catholic Church makes moves like this too. In more recent years, it's been interesting to see how this has changed. Okay, we've been focusing very much on the West, okay, Europe and, in, and uh, North America. And then the only other place the reformers didn't get to a lot of these other places except Korea and a few other little places where Reformed tradition kind of captured. Um, what we see now is this amazing movement that despite the fact that we feel like Christianity is in decline, and if you went to, to uh, Germany right now, the only reason anybody knows anything about Germany, Germany's about a completely secular country. The only reason anybody knows anything about Luther is because they all had to learn it for all these people coming to visit Germany for tur tourism this year for the 500-year anniversary of the 95 Theses. They didn't know it. Most, most Germans did not understand the story of Martin Luther. Okay, so even though it's declining in the West, there's another movement that started. It really started with what's called Pentecostalism, this, this movement in the early 1900s to feel the Holy Spirit move. And we're seeing it now that Africa is hugely, hugely Christian. Okay? And there are a lot of Muslim countries right now. Um, a lot of Muslims are having dreams about Jesus and are learning about the faith then. And in different parts of the world, there's a huge movement in China where you're not supposed to be a Christian. And yet, despite the persecution, they are. And because our world is changing, there are a lot of Muslims who are not allowed to learn about the faith, but they go skiing in the Swiss Alps. And so missionaries that can't go into their countries hang out in the Swiss Alps to teach about Jesus and to be ministers in those places. It is amazing to see how God has worked and God continues to work. And I think it's time for a new reformation. And I'm not, I don't think it's going to be that new. I think we need to rediscover a lot of these core things that Martin Luther did because they've been very good for us. They've been very good for our country. They've been very good for our world. So tell the story of Martin Luther. Think about the story. Read it for yourselves. Think about 
what God has done through this movement and how much this movement has affected your everyday life. Because I think every 500 years a movement happens like this. And that means we're right here. And I think in 500 years, people are going to look back and what happens to the faith between now and then is going to be primarily decided by the next two or three generations. And I think we really need to take that responsibility seriously. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, as we close this series on Martin Luther, may it hang on to us that you may teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.